You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It is May 13th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I've been talking in the last few uh, weeks about uh, this idea of uh, preliminary practices in the, in the very Western sense of it. Uh, and I thought tonight what I would talk about is a little bit about attachment conditioning. Really what I'm trying to uh, describe is these experiences uh, that get in the way of a deeper practice that prevent us from really uh, engaging and seeing these uh, insights that the traditional Buddhist uh, path teaches. Um, one way to describe that, say, would be that you uh, allow yourself uh, to understand what a mind state is, that you recognize what awakened awareness is, and then you begin this process of attempting to stabilize it so that the experience of your mind is always in this uh, enlightened frame. And then as you stabilize it more and more um, to where you're just in that uh, mindset the whole time, you might say that you were enlightened. Um, one of the things that uh, is early on in this process of insight is to see into the experience of self, how it arises and passes and is basically <coughs> a sensing experience. <coughs> Excuse me about the cough. Seems that the spring with the pollen and uh, the smog, uh, especially challenging time for me in this body. Um, one of the things about the nature of self is that uh, if you don't have a, some contrast or some way of seeing it, some way of distinguishing it from the rest of the experiences that arises, you hardly notice it slip in. And because it's created uh, by all of these uh, sort of uh, conditioned structures, uh, it's easy to miss uh, which is the, the activity of self, which is a distortion and what isn't. Uh, and so uh, some practices that would allow you to bypass the, the, the limiting filter of self so that you could create contrast with it can be useful in, in, uh, in uh, deconstructing this. I think that's a popular term. One of the things that we teach in, in, associated, in association with attachment repair is the ideal parent figure protocol. And uh, this is a series really of guided meditations where uh, you in some sense pass, uh, bypass the condition self-response and see through that into the, the, the database itself, the pattern of conditioning that's there. And then in seeing the pattern patterning of conditioning, you can distinguish the self between just the, the, the beingness of you. Um, we get into the, the conditioning starts so early, really, <coughs> before there's the sense of autobiographical memory, 
the conditioning starts. And it creates these views, or you might say these expectations of, of what you're capable of and also what the world is likely to give to you. And if you don't see these uh, views arising in each moment as you formulate self and world, you can create this very limiting experience of the possibilities that are in front of you without even recognizing that that's what you're doing. So using a, say, a quantum metaphor, in each moment, what opens up in front of you is all of the possibilities that you could choose, a vast array of uh, possibilities that you could choose. And then as soon as you choose one, everything except for the one you chose falls away and that's the forward forward momentum which then uh, puts you into the next moment and which uh, opens all of the possibilities that are linked to the choice that you made just before. But if these views get in the way of that and restrict what you can see, you don't see the full range of possibilities, you see the habitual choices that you make. Uh, samsara is a word that would describe that these ruts in your psyche that uh, inform what the possibilities are. If you don't think that you, you can get some of the things that you want, then you may not even see the potential for having them in front of you. Um, Upanyana is the, the database um, where all of these uh, sensing responses are stored. Christian? Do you think of the attachment work? Can you hear me? Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Do you think of the attachment work and maybe even the meta as sort of building up or reifying a more positive sense of self so that you're actually sort of getting further away from the no self? Um, well, I probably wouldn't frame it like that. <clears throat> it also depends on the kind of practice that you do. In Theravada practice, where we're really trying to see into the experience of no self and have the capacity to shut down the experience of self, um, there can be a, a, a sense of preference for the no self experience. I was speaking to a monk uh, who's, uh, who I work with who's in Thailand and uh, one of the, the issues that he has in the monastic experience is that so much of the interactions that he has are uh, with other people who have great capacity for uh, uh, no self states, and, but it feels very cold <coughs> and impersonal. I know with my uh, teacher Shinzen, he often will do the interviews on retreats in the the place of no self, which you can recognize by the way that he looks at you. And, uh, uh, and 10 minutes later, he won't have remembered what happened because there was no self to participate in the making of autobiographical memory. Um, <coughs> we don't escape the human condition. We don't escape uh, the, the evolutionary conditioning that uh, makes us uh, want to exist in complex social groups. When you disconnect from that with this idea that uh, a complete selflessness is uh, the ideal, I think that 
uh, it truncates the experience of, of being human. <coughs> and that actually what we want to do is move effortlessly between a brilliant manifestation of the sense of self that's fully engaged and expressive and then slip into the no self when that brilliant expression isn't needed, that back and forth. In the Tibetan uh, uh, practices uh, that I do, the idea is really simply to expand outward and, and um, center your experience and awareness itself. And so what you see then is these arisings and passings of the experience of self in, in this uh, vast expanse of all arising and passing. And it's easy to see in that regard that they're just like everything else, the experience of self, that there's nothing intrinsically personal about it. But at the same time, you have the experience of the experience of self in that <coughs> vast expanse. Um, but you do have to get quite a long way down the road of your practice in order to be able to begin to have those insights. And uh, what do you have to do in order to uh, remove the obstacles that would, would uh, uh, cause you not to be able to see those experiences? Particularly with self, when most of us are so habituated in fixating a solid sense of self that's in charge of everything. How do you create enough contrast that you can see through that and see <coughs> the, the self arise and pass as just another non-dual sensing experience? When you allow the mind simply to do what it does. That's one of the ways to begin to understand this. If you make an intention not to do anything, what happens with the activity of body-mind? It continues whether you want it to continue or not, right? It doesn't need your permission. You don't need to cause it to happen. It's just a doing that's constantly unfolding. Um, and really, when you think about it, we know so little about what the body-mind is doing most of the time. Um, there are some neuroscientists who say that the body-mind can uh, process 11 million bits of information per second, but that the conscious mind is only 16 bits. So if you were to use the, the math there, almost all of experience you're not privy to, your, your sense of self doesn't get the you know, the, uh, the memos. Um, when they analyze that, uh, 10 million bits per second is visual processing of the external site space. So um, we're massively weighted toward that experience of seeing the world out there. <clears throat> and the East and the West have uh, understood this experience quite differently. I, I say this quite a lot because it's interesting to me. Uh, all the way back to Aristotle, uh, we are calculated in this idea that uh, we take in what's out there and create a representation of it internally and that it's pretty accurate. We see clearly what's happening out there 
and we create a representation of it internally that we use to navigate the world. Is that how you see the world? Um, um, Epicurus added this dimension that if you were in a strong emotional state, that that might affect the way that you create the working model, but it's still largely coming from the outside inside where we create the model based on what's actually out there. Um, <clears throat> later, um, Plato uh, added this idea that we, we look at things that are, are interesting and pleasing to us and we look away from things that are interesting to us. And so we can create a skewed perception of things by, by the preferences that we have. But still, it's what's coming from the outside in. Whereas in Buddhist thought, it's really that you have the capacity to sense. So you have eye consciousness, which is sensitive to the objects of light and that you take those in. And then there's an internal process which understands what those uh, light registrations might be. So with eye consciousness, you see light and form, and with eye-mind consciousness, you see a chair or a lamp, or a, there's a piggy bank on the shelf. So I'm looking at that, and there it is. Um, <coughs> And we understand that mind can have a great impact on what we make and the database that we use to compare the, the raw sensing material uh, has a great influence on what we make that sensing experience into and that our mind state or our view has a great impact on that. And so really in the Buddhist sense is we take in the raw data, we process it, and then we project outward the visual experience of what's there. And it could be you know, wildly inaccurate in, in, rather than uh, that uh, dependence on the idea that we just take in a pretty straightforward uh, interpretation of what's there. Is that making sense? So in this process of uh, practicing, we're trying to sensitize ourselves to this process as it unfolds, knowing uh, that early insight that the self is not substantial and is not in charge, that this whole process of body-mind runs and does all of this, whether the self is thinking it's in charge or not, or even if there's an awareness of the self being there. That making sense. Without the experience of self, really, there's no autobiographical memory made, so you don't remember it. <laughs> Have you ever been in, a, in a, an experience of really high concentration and then looked up at the clock and a couple of hours had gone by? But you don't have much memory of the, the hours that went by. You have a sense of, but sort of a general sense of the activity that you were engaged in, but not the, the process of time. Is that making sense? So, Time is also a relative experience in that way. Um, how do you explore the database? When the, the representations that you make, particularly if you're monitoring them, need to comply with the, with the general sense of, of how you view yourself in the general 
terms of viewing the world. And so uh, it's important to then um, identify a practice that you could use that would uh, bypass those limitations and that you would have the possibility of seeing clearly the way that the mind is conditioned without the sense of self interfering with that and distorting it so that it, it uh, uh, protects the, that uh, sense of belief in a solid, ongoing, continuous experience of self. Is that making sense? You're following me on this one. <clears throat> How do you look at the entry, entries in the database? Just as entries, not in the solidness that they tend to appear as, as as they unfold, and then how do you uh, uh, recognize the limitations of of imagination that may have been imposed on you by conditioning? One of the things that we we know in doing the attachment work is that uh, young children um, who long for something in their lives that they're unable to get or are punished for wanting begin to limit their capacity to even imagine. It's too painful to imagine uh, something over and over again that you're unable to get, that you long for and, and cannot uh, find a way to get uh, that longing satisfied and settled. And so you simply stop longing. By limiting the capacity of the imagination to imagine the situation that you long for. How do you know um, from the absence of those experiences arising consciously where, where those limitations are? And so uh, using um, uh, these pointed uh, guided explorations of those experiences is, is the way that we are able to discover that. And so with the ideal parent figure protocol, we begin to imagine uh, ideal situations, ideal scenarios that are just exactly the way that we want them with, with no uh, uh, limits or uh, variations of that. And what that begins to do is reveal the limitations in imagination that we might have. Since we point in the direction of something ideal if you can't imagine it. Why can't you imagine? And if we uh, uh, push at it and it opens up and you can see that once the limitation of the imagination is removed that the imagination inflates and can imagine those things, then you begin to have this sensitization to how conditioning actually uh, limits uh, experience in a way that you couldn't see uh, if, if the limit simply remained. <clears throat> so imagination is one piece. And then there, there is the actual experiences that you had and the understanding of the experiences. Sometimes uh, we view the experiences in a context that's acceptable to the family system that we grew up in, even though uh, if you compared them to other family systems, the, the, the normalcy of them would not hold. So in some sense, this is a process of talking about um, those things that happened in the context in which they happened and how the narrative of the family 
the narrative of the family system characterized them and then taking them outside of that system and uh, comparing them to uh, a broader array, array of experiences and seeing whether the interpretation that you made was a, a fairly reasonable uh, interpretation or it was quite distorted by the family system. Is that making sense? <clears throat> I don't have good stories of childhood and so I can't draw on, a, on those kinds of examples, but I remember once feeling uh, a very tender, uh, uh, a tender regard for my mother uh, because I had badly burned my hand on some mashed potatoes and that she ran my, my fingers under cold water uh, uh, to uh, make me uh, feel better. That sounds like a nice thing, right? What I, I leave out of that is that she was the one who put the mashed potatoes on my hand. So, um, in the, in the context of my mind and the way that I framed it, it was one of the more tender memories of my mother because I just left that part out. But when I, when I uh, early on told the story as one of these moments with my mother that uh, had a tender sense to it, everybody was horrified <laughs> that she had burned me and then attended to, to uh, the burn. But it, it never registered in the, in the family. That never registered for me because of the way that my family system operated. Now, I admit that my family is, was extreme, but um, I'm trying to illustrate uh, what I'm talking about here. Is that getting through? Is that making sense? If you, you nod your head, then I'll feel more comfortable. <laughs> So <clears throat> we talk about in meditation, being able to see things clearly and seeing these arisings and passings and knowing that uh, the sensing experience is converted into conceptual reality. Uh, it's processed <coughs> it's processed through this database and the entries in the database attached to the unfixed, unfixated, unattached, sensing experience <coughs> and become something. But we want to really see into the nature of how this happens uh, and really understand that that, that uh, sort of normalcy that we get used to where something just uh, is interpreted and in front of us is conditioned, deeply conditioned. And that we want to have some way of uh, uh, contextualizing that without simply coming out of it and, and dropping into the, the no self experience. One of the things uh, that was an ongoing discussion with me and uh, Shinzen for uh, probably 10 years or so, maybe longer, was that uh, he used to say, you don't need to do any of this this work that I'm describing, you just need to get enlightened. And as soon as you're enlightened, then all of this stuff will resolve. Um, and <clears throat> after about 15 years, uh, when uh, the uh, 
these very senior teachers who you could see very clearly had very deep uh, realization, but were still engaged in um, uh, harming practices with, uh, with their students. It's usually some kind of uh, power imposition or sexual impropriety or sometimes physical uh, harm over and over again, uh, people who are highly realized uh, uh, seeming to be caught up in these cycles that he began to, to express that it may be necessary to do this work to get into that conditioning and resolve it uh, before you get into a position of a deep realization and uh, the capacity simply not to have to, to deal with it. I think in the West that most people come into practice because uh, in some way they're suffering. It's not so mainstream yet that everybody just comes in because it's a great thing to do. Um, and maybe more so in, in uh, uh, the mindfulness world where it's, it's a stress reduction or something that uh, concentration practices make you feel uh, blissful or happy. But the people that come into the, to the, the deeper practice are, are usually coming because they're suffering and other things that they've tried to do to help relieve that suffering have not worked. Um, <clears throat> I really like the attachment lens uh, because you can describe these uh, experiences, these tendencies to react in patterns, you can recognize the pattern, but not necessarily understand what the pattern is representing. Um, and then listen to the description of an, a, an attachment pattern and recognize that uh, this is uh, the thing that's happening. I was uh, um, listening to uh, a recording um, this is back when we had CD players in the car and we could put a CD in. <laughs> Somebody knocked off a, a, a copy of a, a, a lecture by Alan Shore and I dropped it into the CD player and was driving along. <coughs> and he was describing disorganized attachment and how that pattern tended to work out in people's lives. And literally in 10 minutes, he described the entire history of my life uh, in a way that was so accurate and so uh, revealing um, in a way that 20 years of psychotherapy did not get at. That was really fascinating. Um, and this was long enough ago that there wasn't really much that you could do about it. Um, and nobody really had an understanding of how to work with it. But uh, thankfully over the last uh, 20 years or so that's changed. and. Um, there are things that you can do with this. But what I noticed in doing it is that it's such a wonderful preliminary practice, a way of resolving these, of these deep conflicts uh, and making everything so much easier that it opens up the space then for uh, you to pursue deep practice, uh, no longer needing to be so fearful about what might come up in practice. Uh, this was a, a perennial problem in, uh, in in early, the early experience of meditating is that you uh, sit of a vipassana retreat or you get instructions for a vipassana 
and it turns your attention into the experience of your inner life. And then you stumble across the material that you just assiduously keep out of consciousness. And then you're overwhelmed by the experience and uh, there's no way to manage it often. Um, in, particularly in the beginning when your, your uh, meditation skill isn't uh, great. Um, and so then you back out. The only way that you have to regulate it is to remove yourself and you stop meditating. And then the suffering that originally drove you to meditate in the first place gets uh, intense enough again that you begin to try to practice again. And then you hit another one of these uh, landmines and it blows up the practice. One of the reasons that I like to teach in the Metavipassana framework is because we do the, the meta side first. <coughs> so you develop the capacity for positivity. You develop the, the, the capacity to concentrate on a very positive state so that when you get into a difficult state in the Vipassana side of practice, you can retreat into the refuge of the positive um, loving kindness practice or compassion or joyfulness practice and hang out there and then let the body mind settle and then go back into uh, the Vipassana practice. It's a way of making yourself fearless in your practice because it doesn't matter how disruptive the Vipassana side of experiences because you have a place to go to that you can then uh, contain yourself in a, in, a, in a positive state and not be so uh, dysregulated and discombobulated. I thought tonight what we would do is some ideal parent figure, just a general ideal parent figure. I'm looking at some of you uh, out there and I know that you uh, have a, a, an advanced ideal parent figure practice or you're, you're beyond the beginning and so uh, um, consider just doing the, the preliminary uh, practice again so that you, you, you touch into the, those building blocks. When we talk about the ideal parent figures, what we want you to do is imagine an entirely uh, fictitious or made up ideal parent. And what we're trying to get you to do is to touch into what you want as a, an ideal mother figure. <coughs> Some people's experience of their actual parents is, is so bad that there isn't a way uh, right away to imagine this ideal mother figure. If that is the case for you uh, and it's too difficult, uh, don't uh, stop doing it. And then imagine an ideal version of yourself that would be perfect to take care of you as the young child. So. We begin by imagining ourselves as a young child, and then we let the mind open to this completely free idea of what it is that we wanted as an ideal mother, somebody perfectly attentive, attuned to us. Um, and then we imagine an ideal father figure in the same way. And then we imagine an ideal place for us to grow up in as a child and to thrive. And then we go through a series of these qualities that really form secure uh, attachment. The first one is a, a felt sense of safety, uh, that we're protected and regarded. Uh, the second one is that we can be attuned to. 
Uh, attunement is where you place your attention on somebody and they place their attention on you. And you uh, each know that you have each other's undivided attention. <clears throat> so much of the difficulty in relationship to your uh, parents, your actual parents comes from uh, a, a kind of misattuning process between them. You don't really get a, their undivided attention or you don't uh, feel seen by them. You don't feel known by them. So imagining that there's perfect attunement and then imagining that they're capable of emotionally regulating exactly the way that you need to be emotionally regulated. One of the things that grows out of misattunement is a is an inability to be emotionally regulated by your parents, which is very distressing for children. They, they, they learn emotional regulation from their caregivers. And if the system for emotional regulation is it, uh, robust and useful, uh, it creates uh, uh, distress uh, from emotional dysregulation. And then the expressed sense of delight. <clears throat> Uh, and then um, the express sense of delight means that your parents delighted in the experience of you, with you without you having to do anything, just the way that you were. So imagining yourself as this young uh, child, perfectly innocent, filled with the wonder of discovering new things, the joy of discovery, and then being met with the delight of the caregivers uh, who uh, see you as the center of everything. And then <clears throat> there's the piece around exploration. So you are free to explore and you're supported and encouraged to explore things that are meaningful, things that are interesting to you. And that's uh, really the basis of secure functioning relationships that you're involved with somebody who takes care of you in the way that you wanna be taken care of. Uh, you take care of them in the way that they wanna be taken care of and each of you supports and encourages the other person to explore the things that have meaning to them uh, and then are present to share the uh, discoveries that they make. <coughs> that all making sense so far? So let's go ahead and do some practice then. So any comments or questions about what we just did? Michael? Uh, I was hoping you could elaborate on the experience of delight. That, that's an area that I've been struggling with in my IPF. Um, oh. And like a, a short story that maybe is some context. I, I did like a short heart practices retreat. Um, and when the teacher was describing Mudita, uh, he was describing the near enemy exuberance um, and giving an example of that. He was like, has anyone seen this TV show? There's this one character that is exactly what exuberance is. And that was my ideal father. Um, and so I don't quite understand exuberance? what delight is. <laughs> well, yeah, delight, exuberance, like it all confuses me. I don't know what it's supposed to like feel like, I guess. 
Hmm. Um, do you have the experience of delight in anything? Yeah. Um, in oh, my yeah. mind. Um, sorry, say that again. <clears throat> do you have the experience of delight in anything? Yes. Can you describe that? Um, I guess not in this moment. I'm starting to clam up. Um, oh. One specific, I guess, area that I'm struggling with is, is a feeling of like unconditionality from my ideal parents that like I am I can't really make the distinction between like doing and and being. Uh, and so the feeling is that like they are delighting in me, but it's um, because of what I'm doing, perform. how I'm perform kind of, yeah. Um, and I, I can't quite make that. And what do you have to do for them in order to get them to delight in you? So it's it's this general feeling that what I'm doing is like good. So it's like I'm I'm being a good person or I am being very good at at a sport or exploring or and it doesn't necessarily mean it to them, but it's this feeling that like they're delighted in me because I'm good at it. Um so but you have the experience of delight even though it's tied up into performance. Yes. So then the idea would be to, each time you notice that you're performing, stop. And then notice that they continue to delight in you. Then do uh, something really bad. Okay. Notice they continue to delight in you. Okay. That, that's an area to explore. Um, I think, uh, but there's still like a confusion around like, what does it mean to like do versus be in, in this like child context? Well, <coughs> maybe you can visualize the, the child self not doing anything. Just standing still and then opening the eyes and seeing the parents there, just delighting in the child. Okay, yeah, both of those are very helpful. I can work with those. Thank you. The, um, one of the things about uh, this uh, process is that it's largely unconscious. So some people are delightful and some aren't. You may have noticed, <laughs> but you don't really get to choose that. It's just how the whole body mind system relates to them. And the whole body mind system is picking up a whole range of, of expressions from the other person that the, the self just couldn't possibly keep up with and track. And so it's important to pay attention to who that is who walks into the room and you just light up with delight in the experience of them being there without them doing anything. And then the key is to pay attention to who that, who you do that for. 
because that's something to begin to value in a relationship. It's the same with who emotionally regulates you and who doesn't. You know, some people, you spend 20 minutes with them, you feel great. Some people, you feel about the same as when you came in, and some people, you feel worse. Some people will just light up with delight in the way that you are without you intending anything. And pay attention to that because it's valuable. <clears throat> it's one of the currencies of secure relationships, but it's also part of the energy with which we explore. Uh, you know, part of it is going out and finding the things that are meaningful to you. And part of it is coming back and relating the stories of what you found out and uh, having the people that you relate them to just light up with the delight that you've gone and done that and, and had that adventure and, and told them. <coughs> maybe so that they don't have to do it or maybe so they, they might want to. Someone else? Christian. I had a really novel IPF. Um, I guess I was testing my parents' delight in me in this one. Um, I was being super bossy and basically like not letting them within like three feet of me. And, uh, and I was like up painting on a hill and I was like, I'm absolutely not going to, it was weird. It was like, I, I was like, I'm absolutely not going to share my painting with you. You're not going to, to be able to see this. And then like, they were like, okay, that's great. And then I basically told them to like, fuck off over there while I painted. <laughs> and, you know, and so they were, they were like sitting on their bench yeah. over under, you know, over down the hill and kind of watching me and, and I guess, still being cool with what I was doing. And, and so it was, it was not a, not a emotion I've really had in my IPF very much, although I've expressed frustration, but like a, a feeling of frustration came up at the very beginning of the IPF. And so that kind of colored the whole thing. So I, I experienced, yeah, it was fine. It was interesting. Uh, yeah. No. Good. Um, someone else? Thank you for coming. Um, what's happening? I have a retreat coming up in June, which is virtual if you want to attend it. It's a Metavipassana retreat, but we will have some attachment focus. Um, in July, I'm starting a series of day-longs for the level one meditation and attachment. We'll do four day-longs over two months. Uh, and then, um, in December, we're having a retreat. I don't know whether we'll have it as an in-person retreat or a virtual retreat. It depends how the pandemic uh, unfolds, but uh, we are considering having it as an actual return to a, a meditation center in the woods for, for that. So stay tuned. I offer the classes on a Donna basis. Donna is the Hollywood uh, for generosity. Um, I hope that you'll make a donation to support me and the work that Metagroup is doing, but if you're not resourced, uh, please feel free to come. The community is happy to support you. I will also say that next Tuesday is the last in the beginner series uh, until the fall. I'm gonna take the summer off from doing that so that we're gonna conclude the Vipassana practice and then 
I'll, I'll still be coming on, on Thursday nights to, to teach this class, but not continuing with the Tuesday night class. Thank you, and we will see you soon, I hope. Bye.